Chess is a game of thinking, of maneuvering, and of planning. When someone wins, both players go home. Well, what if you were playing chess against Russian nuclear submarines at the heart of the Cold War? What if your job was to sink a Russian nuclear sub if the situation called for it? Could you do it? Could you launch that torpedo? Could you handle the stress of potentially having your finger on the World War III start button? On today's episode, I welcome retired Navy Commander Mike Chippy Quinlan, a 27-year veteran who actually lived the hunt for Red October. We talk about his enlisted days tracking Iranian subs during the Iran hostage crisis and his time as a P-3 commander playing chess against Russian nuclear subs, as well as a brief story on potentially the best port call in naval history. I'm your host, Susan, and this is the Ready Room Podcast. All right, we're here in Atlanta with retired commander, 27-year Navy. What'd you do with S3s? What was it called again? I was a Senso. Senso. That's right. So sensor operator. Sensor operator. And then eventually you did that for how many years? Did that for four. Four, and then got to the P3 world as a? I was a, well, started out as a navigator and then fleeted up to TACO, tactical operator, and mission commander. Okay, mission commander. Yeah. And you did some stuff in Iceland, the Mediterranean, anti-drug in South America. Talk about some cocaine, some special operators stuff. And eventually, as part of this, you played chess with Russian nuclear subs in the Mediterranean. Yep. Pretty cool background. We're here with retired commander Mike Quinlan, United States Navy. Mike? Thanks for welcoming to your house and feeding me Oktoberfest beer at one fifteen in the afternoon. I'm I'm happy to do that. You're just catching up, so that's just good. catching up. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. So there are a lot of different angles we can go here, and and my goal is to keep this to two hours, but it's not going to happen. And we're gonna there's gonna be a lot of stories, but really excited to talk about this because this is a part of history that a lot of people have forgotten about or never knew about. Or have never paid attention to because it's not taught in schools much of this. So let's start when you enlisted in the Navy and then just go from there, man. So you, first yep. off, where'd you grow up and then how'd you get to the Navy? So I grew up in Southern California, um, was the kind of you know, San Fernando Valley kid and and did a little surfing before high school kind of stuff. And so if you can imagine me with long red hair and... And, yeah, I can you know, see that. A, a sugar cookie in the sand, and and you know, because that's all that, right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so grew up there. My dad was a was a marketing executive. He was uh, his major account was Coca Cola. We ended up moving from uh, from San or from Los Angeles over to Atlanta, Georgia, and you know, I'll skip some of that other stuff. But the uh, you know, I was a youngster. I was a I was a head there back in the day. The school districts were different. You know, the California school system was really good, and and so I was ahead of of my peers when I got to Georgia. And it was time to start thinking about college. And you know, I was an athlete. I was a high level tennis player and baseball player, and 
my dad was going to do a gig up in Boston to support some things that were going on with his marketing career. And he took me up there and said, Hey, I want you to come in. I want you to talk to the, to the, I've got a meeting for you at the Dean of the school. And I'd already told him that I was interested in going in the Navy. And he, you know, as a, uh, right out of college, he went to UCLA and then he went in the Navy for a couple of years as a supply officer on a, on a dis- destroyer escort. And, uh, you know, my stories are, are, are fun, but his story is just from being in two years as a supply officer and on a destroyer, there, there's some crazy stories there. So anyway, he, uh, you know, that, that kind of rung a bell with me. I was not a great student. And so I, I went with him. I talked with this Dean of this college and my dad's hope was that the Dean would convince me that college was the right thing for me to do. And so he left the room and, and the Dean and I talked. And when my dad walked back in the room, we were laughing and, and joking. And uh, the Dean had a big smile on his face and he said, Mr. Quinlan, your son definitely needs to go in the Navy. Nice. Yeah. So that backfired. So, yeah. So it backfired. Yeah, big your time. dad was yeah. not expecting That's that. That's right. He's okay. like, Oh geez. Okay. So, uh, you know, I was only 17 at the time and he, uh, yeah, for me to enlist, he had to sign the papers for me to do it. So, cause I wasn't 18 yet. So he signed the papers. I went on a delayed enlistment and then ended up going to the Caribbean for about six months and, uh, went on a two week dive trip, ended up staying and worked on a dive boat and, you know, fell in love with an Australian girl and nice. Then had to come back to the, to go to the Navy. So, <laughs> but, uh, at any rate, it was, it was, it was awesome. I, I ended up going into boot camp and, and then there was one job in the Navy that where an enlisted guy could fly in jets off aircraft carrier. And that was being, uh, they don't even have the rate anymore, I don't think, but uh, that was being an anti-submarine warfare operator on the S3A Viking, which was a relatively new airplane. Lots of technology for the time. Um, unfortunately, all that technology was not... Uh, hardened enough that the uh, that it could take a bunch of, of crashes into an aircraft carrier so yeah um, there's not many uh aircraft that can yeah 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 so i mean you you're flying flying obviously very sophisticated airplanes compared to what i was but uh, but it was interesting yeah flying uh i i did all my training i was actually in um, one of the very first aviation uh air crew schools out of pensacola florida so they uh, remember this is this is 1979. Vietnam was was not that long in the history books. Sure, and several of the guys that I went to air crew school were with were uh, Huey gunship door gunners, and they'd gotten out, you know, and they ended up coming back in the Navy after a, a number of years, and it uh, so going to air crew school with those guys was interesting because you know they had all kinds of. Of stories and essentially air crew school was was aocs almost right right across the street from us where all the battalions where the aocs guys were right so uh we went through all the same training with the dunkers and all that stuff you and i've done all that stuff right yeah the, the and, dunker i did was probably a little bit nicer than the one you did in 1979 yeah well you know i mean the one where they strap you in a chair and put you upside down in the water and yeah. those are probably pretty similar but uh <laughs> Um, or they put you in the heat. I know that, uh, by the, for when I went to air crew school in 79 and then went back to AOCS in, um, in 88, 
the the dunker, especially the helo dunker, was I, I think it was the same thing. I mean, the same old guy that was hitting you with in the head with a, the the stick with a tennis ball at the end. Well, you may not know that, but uh, I mean, there was this guy like seventy years old, man. Yeah. If you're over there doing your treading water, and uh, if he didn't like what you're doing, he just club you with this thing. So nice, it was nice. a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah that sounds great. like a yeah. good time. Yeah, good. Time. So you decide to enlist. Yeah. yeah, but historically speaking, the context of what was going on in the world in 1979 is significant. Yeah, and it was at the time. So. 1979, multiple things are happening. So the Russians evade Afghanistan. Yep. The Iranian Revolution starts. The Grand Mosque in Mecca in Saudi Arabia is taken over by uh, extremists. And what else? 79. What am I missing? So who was running uh, Libya at the time in 79? So Gaddafi was, Gaddafi. was in coming in power then. And and so Jimmy Carter is president. Jimmy the U.S. president. That's right. So the world atmosphere was, uh, would you say, a little bit tense at the time? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I was a youngster, right? So I I had uh, finished up all my schooling, and it was I I had been assigned orders to go to VS twenty eight and CAG six. So the I left. Is that Carrier Air Group? Carrier Air Group 6. Air group six. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we so, love acronyms everywhere. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, and yeah, the Air Wing would be, um, w- yeah, you'd have two fighter squadrons. You have a couple of attack squadrons. You have an S3 squadron, which was, you know, the S3 was designed as a, the Carrier Battle Group is, is ringed by any submarine warfare capability for protection of the battle group and the high-value asset being the carrier. And on the outermost circle is the P-3s, which uh, the P-3 Orion, which was the airplane that I flew in, the second kind of part of my life in flying in the Navy. And then the the medium-range protection was the S-3A Viking. And then the in-close protection was the the Hilo, right? Uh, typically the uh, SH-3 um, anti-submarine warfare helicopter. So... The, I got orders out to VS-28. VS-28 was on deployment uh, in the Indian Ocean. They had left Norfolk and uh, headed down into the IO. And in order for me to get there, I uh, rode a, a number of airplanes to get to the PI, the Philippines, uh-huh. and uh, had to wait in a Longapo for a period of time. Okay. And so I... I, I get to Longapo, I have now, I don't, I'm not even sure I turned 18 yet. Well, no, I'm 18 now. So I get into Longapo, they put me in this billeting, this birthing place. It's a 150-man basic giant Quonset hut, right? Like a warehouse. Right. And all the beds are kind of lined up next to each other. There's two people in there. There's me, and there is a uh, first-class petty officer who had been busted from chief. And so, you know, I throw my crap down and I, you know, get ready to, I'm going like, all right, what do I do now? Cause I got to be here for a week waiting for the USS Kiska, which was an ammunition ship. Okay. That was going to resupply the carrier in the IO. Um, so you're in the Philippines. I'm in the PI. By yourself. By myself. You're 18. 18. Is there any supervision? 
there's no, and actually, there, not only is there no supervision, but I've got this other guy who is going to take me under his wing, and he's a busted chief down to a first class. I feel like there's some potential yeah. here for there, some. There, there, there probably are some stories there, but okay. uh, uh, we'll we'll probably skip that portion <laughs> of it. So, at any rate, uh, we have a good time in the PI for for five days. I get a little hair on my chest, and then uh, after that. Uh, I take my, my whole 120 pound frame and, and get on the Kiska and we ride the ship for, for, I don't even remember how long it was, but, uh, got out to the carrier where we vert repped from the Kiska onto the, you know, rode the Hilo off the Kiska and then onto the carrier. And, uh, that's when my carrier life started. So this is, this is still 79 or is this early 80? So then? this is, this is in the 80 now. Early right? 80. Because so I've gone through, uh, this actually is. Uh, probably in in uh, September of 1980. 80. Okay, so okay. at this point, um, had the Iran hostage crisis. Yes. So it's been going on. This is going on. So you show up during that. Yep. I mean, there's some where you're going because you guys were headed to the Gulf. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're heading to the Gulf. I mean, this is this yeah. is heated. Yeah. So we're out on uh, Gonzo Station, which is is right in the Arabian Gulf, right? Uh, towards the, uh, near the entrance to the Straits of Hormuz into the, um, um, uh, what's the, into the, it's in the Arabian yeah, Sea, yeah. Straits of Hormuz, and then into, Arabian the, Gulf. into yeah. the Arabian Gulf. So uh, that um, Gonzo station was where the carrier kind of hung out and we would launch missions into um, the Arabian Sea or, the Gulf, right from there. So we had protection and, and the biggest problem that we had there was that we needed to stay out of the surface to surface missile range so that if we got too close, then they could, they could launch on us. Um, but at any rate, I who, joined, who's they at the, time? so this is the Iranians at that time. Okay. Got yeah. it. So we relieved the Nimitz. The Nimitz was the carrier that supported the rescue attempt that uh, that Bubba may have may have referenced on his his podcast with you, and so we relieved those guys. Uh, we we then took over all air operations in support. And the big thing that we were really worried about at that time, from an ASW perspective, was that the Iranians had a couple of diesel submarines, and those diesel submarines had the range to actually get towards the carrier battle group. So we would. Why would a diesel submarine make you guys nervous? Because diesels were extremely quiet submarines. Okay? Uh, they actually, at the time, were quieter than the nuclear submarines of that era. And they could only stay submerged for a limited amount of time. But when they were submerged, they were very, very quiet submarines. And so we would have imaging data of the ports that would come in and remember back in the day it's 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 not like it is like now, the right? imaging data yeah. is a little so, bit different so like i mean i'm talking about pictures right? yeah. <laughs> yeah they'd come down to the ready room they'd spread out uh our intel officer would spread out all of these pictures of all of the ports and we would we would be able to see what's going on and there were times that those submarines were not you know leashed up to the dock right right so that's how you knew they were out you just had it a 
some type of pixelized version of the actual sub dock. Yeah, yeah. So all of our imagery then was actual pictures. Okay, so it was black and white photographs. (laughs) And (laughs) so, yeah. So, and when, as a matter of fact, we had, uh, I'll tell you a story in a bit about the, we had RF8s on board. So F8 that had been converted to a reconnaissance airplane. This is the Crusader. That's right. Right. That's right. So the RF8, right, was our, um, they would go do BDA. So bomb damage assessments, right? Instead of taking satellite imagery and doing that kind of work, they put they had integrated uh, old-fashioned camera pods that were built into the airplane. They go out zooming and uh, and take, take pictures, some, take some photos. Intel guys would come down and they do an in-person brief for us and show us, you know, all the information that we needed. So you guys look at the photos, yep, and you're like, uh oh, there's some subs out. That's right. Then what? So then we start we start launching right. We're at that point the the admiral uh, the battle group commander is is putting together the ASW net to create a screen for the carrier, which is the the high value unit. And part of that screen, you've got surface ships that are out there using active sonar. They're pinging, you know. So just like in the World War II movies where yeah. you know, the sub guys are sitting in there, Bing. and they're hearing the the stuff. So, and, you know, in our birthing space on the carrier, we would, they'd ping all night long. So we're in there trying to hit the rack and the reverb off the hull oh, man. was just you know, like crazy. Yeah. So at any rate, they, uh, they would set up the screen. We'd have the picket ships out there. We would be airborne and we always had a ready alert. Uh, typically it was a 30 minute alert. Sometimes we're in a five minute alert on, okay. on yeah, the cat. Ready, ready five. Yep. Uh, and then if we got queuing data, uh, and, and with the diesels, what they would do is they would come up and take a look and they would, they would put their periscopes up. They also had to recharge their batteries during certain periods of time. So they would, there was an opportunity for us to get them on radar or if they ever lit off their radar to get a surface picture, then we would, you know, our EWO guys, our electronic warfare guys, would get a line of bearing on them to get some positional data. And then we would go prosecute. So what was, so two-part question, specifically what was your mission set for the S3? And then what was the ROE at the time when it came to these diesel subs? So, or rules of engagement. What was the rules of engagement for them? Yeah, so the mission set for the S3 was um, primarily anti-submarine warfare, uh, and the weapons that we would carry were, at that time, the Mark 46 torpedo. We also carried, uh, we carried conventional depth bombs, which were basically Mark 82 hard bombs that were configured with, uh, with different arming mechanisms to they would go off on you're just chucking basically. bombs in the water and oh yeah we that's could, it yeah I, i'm yeah. not surprised yeah. that sounds yeah. exactly so and and they were very effective oh, right totally uh, yeah yeah because yeah. uh, the compression if they got deep enough that was not good but right. uh but at any rate we would uh so we would take those we had zuni rockets that we could carry um that was basically our um we had no air to air capability but we had air to air to ground. We limited air to ground. We had uh, 
air to surface because our second major mission was uh, to go shoot Soviet warships. And we used Harpoon missiles for that. Wow. So this is mid-hostage crisis. That's right. They still have... They've got the they've got the hostages. all the hostages yep. the the American hostages, and they didn't get released for a few more months. Yeah, they got released. I think it was in February of eighty one. So I mean, like so this is you're six months prior to that. Yep. So what's the ROE? Yeah, and the you know I was a I was a young young enlisted guy at that time, right? So um, and remember, this is kind of cool. I was looking at a cruise book last night, and you know, everybody's got beards. Yeah, this is old Navy, right? They're yeah. they're it's not that long after after Vietnam. I bet the mustache scene uh, was pretty strong. Oh, dude, it was some yeah, good ones. Our JOs were just, <laughs> I mean, it was just not nasty. Good. I mean, yeah. you know, it's it's bad enough nowadays with the JOs trying yeah. to put on a mustache, especially right. going into into Pensacola. But uh, but then it was it was all on, man. It was there was big beards and mm-hmm. big mustaches and the whole thing, and. The, uh, so ROE, well, ROE at that point was if you gain contact, you had to identify them as hostile. Okay? If you could identify them as hostile and there was a, an opportunity for them to be inside what we call the limiting lines of approach, the ability for them to shoot given the weapon systems that, that, our intel told us that they had at that point we could we could um we would inform the um the subsurface warfare commander and at that point he'd work with the staff and the admiral and make a decision as to with all of the other intel that they're getting outside as to what they were gonna what they wanted us to do so Uh, could your ceo or whoever was in the aircraft at the time, the aircraft commander, could he make that call? So the aircraft commander could do that. Um, if there were certain criteria where um, we believe there was impending action that was going to be taken against the carrier battle group, then the, uh, the mission commander had full authority to go and launch offensive weapons on the target. So these guys are lieutenants primarily, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, twenties, that's right. So later in my career, I had the, the same yeah. thing that we can talk about later, but, uh, yeah. So our, you know, there's a lot of responsibility there, right? You've got, you've got young Navy lieutenants that, uh, have the opportunity to, uh, put weapons on a, on a foreign, uh, vessel that is, you know, is full of equally young sailors from another country and, without without any authority other than what you know we we had on our shoulders so was the it was a different world back then so the world now is much smaller i mean one thing that happens on the other side of the planet you can read about five seconds later yep via the internet but the world in 19 you know at this point it's mid 1980 it's a bigger world in a way did people back home were they aware of kind of the scenario of what you guys were doing or obviously they knew about the the hostage crisis because that was big news but is that i'm assuming that's probably all they knew yeah so uh i was getting the way i was communicating with my family was via no kidding airmail 
right? You know those letters that have the yeah, little patches like, around use the pens and stuff that's right, and right yeah, on paper. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That it's and uh, <laughs> and I got paid. You know, I got paid a check. Right, you my, got a I check, got a check. Holy yeah, sh- and that what was check, it like? Twenty it, bucks a month back then? What did you make? It was not a lot of money. Man. I, <laughs> I tell you, I think I first went in the navy. I got paid two hundred and fifty-six dollars a month. I think nice, is what man. I got. So uh, when my yeah. son gives me a hard time about how he's not getting paid much, I'm like, dude, just just you know, sh- stop talking. That's man. right. Yeah, uh, but. Yeah, so we would you know, take our checks and we'd hide them someplace so that they didn't get stolen. We'd get back to port and you know have a bunch of paychecks that we could cash. Yeah, you know? uh, we'd go down to the dispersing office and and they'd give us a bunch of cash. And then we were sailors out in port with a lot of cash on our hands, so that was not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> I guess the good part about that was that on that deployment, we deployed for a scheduled six month deployment, ended up being a nine month deployment with only two port visits. So where'd you guys go to port? We went to Perth, Western Australia. Nice. Was good choice. Pretty, pretty smoking hot. I mean, I think we were the first carrier into Perth since world war two. No kidding. And, uh, how was the, we're, uh, we're the getting, welcoming? We're getting off track, but I know but okay. what we, was, this, this what is was, important. What we was really cool about, about Perth was we need to talk that, about port call in Australia. Yeah, oh yeah. So they had this thing called dial a sailor and the pier was big enough that you could actually, uh, no, actually I take it back. I don't think we could pull in. We, I think we had to take Liberty boats in. And I stood in line on the fly, on the hangar bay for nine hours to get on a Liberty boat in order to get into Perth. And it was great because I had a couple of days off. And we there was a couple of guys and I, we had, had been fortunate enough to figure out some kind of hotel that we could get into. But the deal was that you, the Liberty boat rolled up and they had these these big um, like portable chalkboards, these big easels, that, and there was hundreds of them on this pier, right, this giant pier. And on them were three-by-five cards with phone numbers and, you know, and names, like, you know, Susie Jones. Are you shitting you know, me? Give me, you know, dial a sailor, give me a call. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so that's what we did. And we picked a, a three by five card and they had a big giant f- bank of phone booths and we're all wearing our whites and oh my gosh, we dude. called them. And so we had a really good time. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, oh the Australian guys that were there, the, especially the old guys, it, you could not pay for a drink right. in Perth because they remembered, you know, the Guadalcanal, the US, man, right? world Absolutely, war two. Yeah. Man. So, um, so it was awesome. We Holy had crap. a blast and I had, uh, that's a, that's a separate podcast. We have to do is. a full episode. It on. is. It is because I'll dial a sailor, dial a sailor, that's 1980 right. in Perth, Australia. You got it. Oh, we're doing that. You got it. I'll tell you about the, uh, do you remember? I'm going to give you a teaser. So the, Fire the card, that this I, is the trailer, the card that I pulled. Okay. Uh, 18 year old daughter of the, uh, of a very uh, wealthy guy that owned the equivalent of the Bud Racing Team for um, you know those speedboats that have like that are the the super high powered racing speedboats yeah. that have like three yes. you know three fifty outboards on yeah, the back just of ridiculous them. amount yeah. of horsepower. Her dad had that team for Australia. Okay, so. I didn't stay in the hotel. It was awesome. Got it. Oh, man. 
Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. So getting back to you. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get okay. back. Let's so, get back. So, so your the deployment. So one port called a Perth. Where was the other one? Uh, we went to uh, an island called Mauritius off of Africa. You shitting me? Yeah. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. And so we were there for a couple of days and, you know, I think that, uh, oh, I, so the, the, the way to get off the ship was to get off early. So you didn't have to wait for eight hours. And, and remember that we're talking about two port visits in nine months, right? Yeah. This is the, the last beer that we had had. We had, we had got to have some beer in, um, in Australia. And then they used to have this thing where they had these steel beach parties right oh yeah still goes, so still on, goes the, on today on the flight deck still and goes if, on if you're out for 90 days they give you two beers and everybody's you know trying to buy beers off of each other you talk about some entrepreneurs oh right? yeah you can make you can mark it up <laughs> nothing like drinking warm budweiser off a pallet you know that's <laughs> that's been you know it's taken you six months to get there yeah. but um uh yeah so we did mauritius uh the way to get off the ship there is you sign up for a tour so i signed up for this bird watching tour and nobody was signed up for it. It was great. There was like out of, out of a couple thousand guys, there was like six people that were signed up for this tour. So I get to get off the boat pretty early, go down there. There's a bus takes us to the bird watching tour. And the person that's given this tour is this smoking hot, like 22 year old French girl. Oh, jeez, And the great thing about the tour was not only was she smoking hot and she talked to us about birds, which we really didn't care about, yeah, yeah, you but we had these giant, uh, uh, tubs of beer on ice in the back of this, of this bus. And so you can imagine that we spent, I think we spent six hours with this girl and, you know, doing, looking at birds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Looking and, at birds. And we just, and yeah, there's no ice on the carrier. So getting a cold drink a cold beer, anywhere man. and making it a cold beer, that was just amazing. Oh, man. So anyway, Mauritius was good. So cool. All right. Separate separate episode That's on, right. pod, so, on uh, yeah. port calls. But so you got extended from initially six months to nine months. Yep. You sort of, you guys were headed home and then you got the call like, hey, you got to go back or what happened yeah, then? Yeah, so they, we finished up and they, they sent us through the Suez Canal. So we were the, uh, uh, the America, I think, relieved us they were the first carrier to go southbound through the suez since it was closed uh, because it had been closed for uh for one of the middle eastern engagements but it was like 1960 something where the suez canal had been had been closed but uh the 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 independence was the first northbound carrier through through the canal and everybody was really stressed out because you know the carrier is so vulnerable going through the Suez, right? And nobody really knew what was going to happen. So they, uh, the S3 was the only airplane that could launch with any, well, launch at all, but launch with any weapons off the carrier in the canal. And so what they did was they put us on the Alert 5, and this is early getting ready to inch up the canal. So they put us on the Alert 5. They had four S3s on each of the catapults, we had iron bombs and we had Zunis on the airplane. And the idea was that if, and we had all the sponsons, the Marine debt was on the sponsons with 
uh, heavy machine guns and mortars uh, to you know, to potentially you know engage any. Were they setting target. up the mortars and the machine guns on the deck? They're on the sponsons. They're they actually look, on the sponsons. On what's, the, what's the sponsons? So again? the sponsons are these areas that are um, in the hull of the oh, ship. Got it. Okay? Got it. Okay. And there are kind of these little outcroppings in the hull. Yeah. Little yeah. little balconies. That's for, right. for a yeah, better word. Yeah. Balconies. Little balcony. So yeah. they had mortars. Yeah. And machine guns set up on the on the balconies. That's right. Just in case. That's right. No kidding. All and right. So I mean, I don't. You know, we. I don't know what we we're going to do with that stuff. But but the point is that they they we all felt like we were going to do something, right? Yeah. And. Um, I can't remember if we had CWIS configured on that on that uh, or not. I think we did, but CWIS is is the gnarly the, machine gun. That's right, and it's designed to engage cruise missiles that are coming into the ship. So a machine gun that shoots down missiles. That's right. Yeah, it's love it's it. Pretty Mac Daddy, right? So, at any rate, uh, we're on the alert five. Everybody's all tense and thinking, you know, this is could not be a good deal. And uh, I think I was on Cat Two. We had uh, number one engine was running and so all we had to do was spool up number two and we we're rocking and rolling and after about we inch up the suez after about the first hour um we started seeing all these people on the flight deck i mean there was like you know initially there was maybe you know 100 people up on the flight deck and after about another 30 minutes now all of a sudden there's like a couple hundred people on the flight deck and they're all they're all kind of aft of where we were but uh what had happened was people the the alert you know kind of prior you know the 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 status of the ship had started to to they weren't as afraid of what was going to happen right intel was all good and so they ended up standing us down off the alert and it turned into this giant steel beach party of people kind of hanging out on the flight deck, you know, l driving through the Suez Canal and seeing burnt out, you know, tank holes and all kinds of stuff on either side. Dude, yeah, because uh, that would have been from, gosh, Israel, Egypt back in the day. Yeah, it was like the Seven Day War or something. Yeah, like six, that, yeah right? Six Day War yeah. of like, yeah. I think sixty eight. Don't don't quote me on that. Yeah, so we got into the med. We're supposed to turn left to go to Norfolk. We got the word we're turning right to go uh, uh, support the operations in Lebanon. What was going on there? Well, the Israelis had invaded Lebanon at the time. And um, so we're allies, and our job was to, we basically, uh, there was us and there was another carrier, I think, that was there. But we were flying missions right off the coast that were, you know, kind of they were, you know, projection of power type missions out there. And so that was, you know, those missions were, we'd fly them in the middle of the night. And um, matter of fact, we had uh, during one of those missions, and I believe it was on this, this cruise, the, um, we would do these MCON launches. Like it, it was a 2 a.m. launch kind of thing. And what's, what's were, MCON? Uh, emission controlled. So all the lights on the carrier were off. There was no radars, no radars, no electronic emissions, nope. so no radios. Yep. Right. So you're doing these launches without any kind of. You're radio. blacked out. It's calm all, out. It's all hand. Everything. Yeah. Hand and arm signals. That's right. Taken yep. off from yeah, the carrier. You, you've done this. Yeah. So, it's so fun. Um, but what we would do is we would fly these missions up and down the coast, and what we were looking for was uh, Soviet combatants and you know, trying to see how they were going to be in the mix and all the rest of it. So. 
we get on launch and get on cat two and at the, you know, touch the deck, get the cat stroke, end of the cat stroke, the, uh, number one generator fails in the airplane, total darkness in the airplane. Okay. We got, we had nothing. So the guy in the left seat's a, a JG the guy in the right seat's an O four who had been test pilot school and the guy in the left seat's flying the airplane. So we get the end of the cat stroke, all lights go out, no reference to the horizon. It's, it's a no moon night, right? So you've flown those missions. Yeah. Dark, and dark and dark. So the end, we're flying. Okay. The problem is that the guy's got no reference to the horizon and uh, no, no instruments to fly from. And, you know, his, his inclination at the end of the cast stroke is to, is to put a little, pull revert aft stack. Right. And, uh, so we ended up the, the, they estimated, you know, we went into stall Buffett and the guy in the right seat took over the airplane and his, uh, we all would wear our, the old fashioned, uh, flashlights that were kind of the gooseneck flashlights uh, with red lenses on them. Oh yeah. You're uh gosh, what do we call on our SV twos, right? Or on our survival vest. What do we call those? And, Right, the so green handle, green handle, yeah, the old, old school. Yeah, oh yeah, man, moonbeam. Yeah, the, there you go. It's your yeah. moonbeam. Yeah, so there we go. We'd have the red lenses on. We every night cat stroke, we would we would have those things on. And the uh, the guy in the right seat, the the test pilot guy, uh, there's a there's a, a peanut gyro that that he was smart enough to to focus in on. And when the guy in the left seat went into stall buffet at the end of the cat stroke, you know, shortly after the cat stroke. Um, the guy in the right seat dumped the nose, got the airspeed, and uh, and flew the airplane from the peanut gyro down near his left knee. So I'm in the airplane uh, in the back left seat. My taco is in the back right seat, and um, uh, it was. I remember this because he was he was leaning across his seat and looking up towards the flight station. And I'm not sure what he was trying to do, but, but, uh, I grabbed him by the chest and pushed him back into his ejection seat because I was pretty sure we were punching out and punching out in front of the carrier off cat two is not in the middle of the night is not a great place to punch <laughs> out. And so <laughs> anyway, the, uh, the guy gets in under control, flies the airplane, get altitude, um, in order to reset the circuit breakers, I have to get out of my seat. There's a little, in the S3, there's a little tunnel back there. I, I reset all the circuit breakers. We get the generators back online. We're, we're good to go, right? Uh, we now break MCON, talk to the ship, tell them, hey, look, we're coming back. And um, come in on the bolter. So we, and, and the bolter, for, for people listening, that just means that you, you, you don't catch a wire and you go around. Um the generators failed again. Nice. And so now we're dark, but this time we're ready for it and, uh, ended up coming back in and landing and, and all was good. But, uh, but it was a pretty wicked little, uh, night event that, uh, dude, I, I, I blacked out night cat shot, lose the generators, no horizon, no clouds, no moon. Oh man. That sounds so fun. Yeah. So fun. Yeah. Yeah. But, and the thing was, is that when we came back, 
the COXO were all in there, and the the uh, the O four was he was all upset, and they said, "Well, what are you, what are you doing?" He said, "Well, I should have ejected the crew." <laughs> did he? How did? What did you guys bottom out at? Do you know? Uh, I don't know. It was it was below the flight deck level, which is sixty so, feet. Yeah, people. So, yeah. Jeez. Okay. So, anyway, the uh, so that was fun, but, uh, but so you the, guys are you're back. You bang a right. You're supporting. Mm-hmm. The Israelis in the Israeli-Lebanon conflict. Yep. This is eighty-one it's, now. Now we're in we're in eighty-one. Yeah. Eighty-one. Are the hostages still in Iran? Do they still have them? No. So they've been released because they That's released right. in, was it they January were, eighty-one? Yeah. And so this was later. We were supposed to go back. Yeah. This was probably mid eighty-one. Mid eighty-one. Okay. Is this? Did you get a chance to? Because um, this one, Gaddafi was starting to say, "Hey, I own the Mediterranean Sea." And right make all these crazy claims was this this cruise or the next one so that was the next cruise and okay. basically you know we went home everything was cool as a matter of fact i'll tell you one quick story last story of this cruise um we one of those rf8s that i talked to you about we're off the coast of norfolk and they're flying the air wing off and you know typical thing if in the s3 squadron there's only i forget how many jets there were but uh uh, you know, a limited amount of guys got to fly off. Everybody else had to ride the carrier back in. And, you know, I was junior enough. I, I There was no choice. I was riding the carrier back in. And I was on duty in the ready room looking at the plaque camera and on the sound-powered microphones that, that we used to have. And the RF-8 takes CAT-2 and launches. Okay. So he gets to about... 50 miles off of the coast of uh, uh, Virginia and gets an engine failure. So How many engines are in an F-8 Crusader? One. And he punches, right? So he punches out, and instead of taking them, the Hilo goes gets them. Instead of taking them, to Virginia. <laughs> to Virginia. They brought him back to the boat. <laughs> so oh, come this, on. this poor bastard had, oh. had gone through a nine month cruise. Talk about punches out on the on the on the going home, and then they bring him back to the boat. Dude. So that sucked, right? <laughs> so I'm on the plaque camera. The guy they the helo comes, he gets off the helo, he's soaking wet, he's got all the lobes on his SV2 are all popped open and all the rest of it. And that's not the fun part of the story. So that happens, right, in 1981. Well, a couple of years ago, I am at a social event, and this is a, 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 a group called Business Executives for National Security. So a bunch of people that have a lot of money, and they're, they've got big businesses, and they're trying to support DOD. And I didn't have a lot of money, but I was a commander, so they invited me to be there. And so I'm telling this story to a group of guys this person behind me taps me on the shoulder and he says were you on the independence for the 8081 cruise and i i said yeah i was he goes that story you're telling me that's me (laughs) 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 so that was him and uh and so we had a a good time talking about that dude that is i would be choking those helo guys are you shitting me yeah 50 miles and they mm-hmm. brought him back to the ship mm-hmm. to ride the ship in. Oh man, That's right. I would have That's paid right. him off or tried at least. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the your your we'll fast forward here. So we go to the next cruise, and we'd all done ORE and gone through you know operational readiness, gone all through all the stuff. And remember back then, the uh, 
you know, all of our operational readiness exams and stuff, they were, they, you know, we were identifying, it was all Soviet stuff. We were yeah, so this was, so we're talking second cruise now. So now we're in the second cruise. Okay, so we'll do a quick. Stop. Okay. Uh, Okay, so this is second cruise time, right? Yep, second cruise in Mediterranean. And you're on what boat? USS Independence. Still doing S3 Ninja stuff? Still doing the S3 thing. And uh, so we talked about ORE and all that. And really what we were doing then is is it was this was our 100% focus was uh, flying against Soviet hardware, right? What so, year is this now? Because you went back in 81. Yeah, so now we're 82. 82. So yep. uh, this is Central Cold War. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So our turnaround time back in Jax was short, right? So we had, um, we got back into Jax. It was like nine or 12 months or something. And then we were back out at sea again. And again, this is a six month cruise that turned into like a nine month cruise. And America, love yeah, it. Yeah. It was, it was just the way it was. Uh, you know, op tempo was, you were just, just doing a lot of flying and and it was great and it was fun and we enjoyed the shit out of it so it was fun but uh so now we're in the med and we are doing you know we're back over at at bagel station for a while which is bagel station is off lebanon that okay. area right so the far eastern mediterranean and now we're we're flying you know we're we're transiting doing different stuff and different types of operations and Probably this, you know, the story I told you earlier was the Libyan story where the carrier before us, the there was F-14s that had shot down two Libyan MiGs. And so those Libyans, I think, were initially thought to be MiG-23s. And I, I think that the they ended up classifying them as MiG-21s. But so that was the, those are Tomcats. Those were Tomcats. So yeah. this is new, though. I mean, this is Tomcats are new at this time. Yeah, they're because yeah. your last cruise, what did you have? What was the the lineup on the deck? Yeah, so in the the first cruise, you know, we were old school, right? We were a conventional carrier and we had F fours for our fighters. We had A sevens. There were a couple A fours on board. We had the S three. We had EA six attack airplanes, heavy attack airplanes. Right, the uh, A seven was the, the, or I'm sorry, we had A sixes, not A six intruder intruders. Yeah, gotcha. So they were our heavy attack airplanes, and then we had the light attack airplanes. Was the A seven, and we had we even had, we had a couple of whales on board, which was the A three, which was originally designed as a nuclear delivery platform, and uh, now that, they, that's interesting. I, I very few people probably know that. So what was a whale? A, a whale was a twin engine airplane that was designed to deliver a, a single weapon, right? And it, uh, uh, you know, obviously it never dropped one, but it was... We're uh, talking nuclear. Yeah. It, it was, was designed to drop a single nuclear bomb. Right, that's right, that's right. So 
Uh, yeah, I have to get over the old days where you say I, I may or may not have. Yeah, you can just say it. <laughs> so, anyway, the uh, yeah, so they reconfigured those airplanes to be electronic warfare airplanes, and they would put. I can't remember the number. I, I think I flew with them one time, but it was four or five guys in the in the tube of the airplane, and a couple pilots up front. And there are no ejection seats in the plane, so you know you're taking the cat stroke. And they flew with the escape hatch open, and that way, if they got a cold cat and went in the water, they could, you know, try to scramble their way out of there. But uh, and you know how you know how successful that really is. Yeah, the scramble. Yeah. So, um, at any rate, the, so the lineup on the on the on the ship was different. We our second cruise, we had F-14s as our fighters now. And these are F-14As, so early f 14 The originals. Yep, yep. Right. So had the F-14, um, had, still had A-7s, had A-6s. We had EA-6Bs now on board. Um, oh, and on that previous cruise, I, like I told you, we had the F-8, the, uh, uh, the F-8, uh, RF-8. Um, and then the S3s and so, you know, your standard. So a new lineup on the new cruise. New lineup. Because the yep. Tomcats are brand new. So you guys showed up after they had shot down the two MiG-23s from That's Libya? Right. That's right. What was the what was the issue with Libya at the time? What was going on there? Well, you know, I'm, I, I would have to, I'm not really remember what the whole geopolitical thing was, but the deal was that, that Gaddafi had his... He had established that point to point from the entrance to the to the uh, Gulf of Sidra was his territory, and so we would fly freedom of navigation flights inside the Gulf, and we would basically stay on a twelve mile, you know, uh, twelve miles off the coast. And the mission set was this: so we would have uh, we'd have fighter cap, we'd have an EWO bird. We would have a uh, uh, E2 for early warning, and then the S3 would would fly right along the coast. And basically, what we were doing is we were we were getting them to light us up with their SAM sites so that the uh, the EWO guys they could map where everybody was. So they would you would your bait, right? You were the bait. Yeah, yeah. So yep. you and your S3 are raging twelve miles from. Libya? That's right. We're doing our thing, baby. We're just cruising. You're just you're, you're ripping it at point eight. <laughs> yeah, so, not even that. Not, yeah, yeah. So you're, you're raging, not real fast. Right? So you're the bait. So they're you're literally waiting till the surface air missile sites light you up, so they can your EWO guys can catalog where the SAM sites right. are. Yeah, and you know this. Oh yeah, yeah, and and they did too. I mean, it was this was not you know this was just kind of what you did. This is Tuesday. It's like, yeah. It's no like, big deal. Yeah, hey, go, I'm going to go on a flight. I'm going to get some mid-rats, and then I'm headed up to the flight deck, and I'm going to go flying. Yeah. What kind of, do you remember what kind of SAMs they had? Dude, I, you're, now you're Now we're, we're yeah. digging into the, the archives. I, I, I am not ORE ready at this point. <laughs> okay, no worries. But, so, uh, continue. Yeah. Yeah, so that was the that was the mission, and, you know, the probably the most exciting night was, uh, we would fly all these at night, and the we went out to do our thing and uh one of the one of the fighters had an engine problem had to get back to the ship wingman went with them and so now we we didn't have the cap and we but we had our ewo guys we had the e2 out there and just kind of flew the profile the the uh it was either the e2 or the ewo guys called launch 
right? So not a, not a SAM launch, but a, uh, an aircraft launch and which was not really good since we had no air to air capability. So who so, launched? So the Libyans launched uh, two MiG 23s and they identified them from the radar, I think is what they did. And then, uh, so basically we were totally defensive at that point. And really what the pilots did was they, they slowed the airplane down, dove for the deck and it's, you know, it's nighttime, but we're about 50 feet off the water. So flying, uh, trying to stay out of a shooting, you know, out of a shooting solution from these guys. And the EWO guys are, are running jammers and we're, uh, in my station, I could, I had some electronic warfare capability, so I could see, I could see emitters and we would have, you know, I could kind of get a relative bearing from the emitter. And basically I was feeding that information to the flight station. Those guys were, were, were basically turning inside the solution. So the, the MiG-23 has got a terrible look down, shoot down capability or we did we knew that that wasn't something that they were great at but uh, at the same time you know they're they're launching the alert five off the ship those guys are you know going to zone <laughs> you know zone five or whatever it is yeah. and busting ass out there to come get us um as soon as they lit up the uh the migs with their radars would they launch tomcats yeah, there's Tomcats at the time. Okay, yeah. so Tomcats are bustering from the Alert 5. Yep, they're busters, yep. Because they know these dudes got a vector on you. The MiG-23s have a vector on you and your your S3. That's right, exactly. Yeah, so they're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. Because <laughs> you guys are just raging. Yeah, so we're, you know, uh, it's like, you know, do some of that pilot shit math, yeah, right? Yeah. So, and I'm sitting in the back, you know, there's nothing I could do except yeah. for except for see what I could see. But, uh at any rate, they, uh, they lit them up as soon as they got lit up, you know, their brothers had just been shot down a couple of months before and they're hauling ass back home. And so it was, uh, it was a, uh, uh, an interesting evening to be flying around the Mediterranean. Sure. And, um, but you know, no harm, no foul. It was all good. So that's, we, uh, I'm, that's I'm, another good I'm sure story. that the, uh, that the pilots thank their, their F 14 brothers in the wardroom uh later that evening so yeah definitely yeah so that was the that was a small part of what you guys did in the med at that time because it wasn't the majority of it this is when you had mentioned the russians were a big player in the area yeah so submarines everywhere right i mean um you know russian submarines were the the charlie class submarine which was a um uh, it was a uh, a guided missile submarine. They they could launch submerged. Um, they were a significant threat to the carrier, and so we did a lot of flying out there looking for these guys. And we knew at, at one point there was uh, at one point we were flying, and we called it flapping. You know, so you're launching event after event after event after event and um, we had five soviet submarines that were um were actively positioning themselves around the, the carrier battle group so we were trying to maintain contact on these on these these submarines so it was uh it, it was it was it was pretty cool stuff because during that time you know there was there was a lot of things going on in the world and our, uh, alert levels were, were heightened and, and, 
um, if these guys got into the uh, into shooting positions against the carrier, then um, we were always we were always ready to be able to um, if if we were told to do so, and we had good attack criteria on the target to to go and and push the button. So what's the what's the day to day of that? Is it a constant? Is it a twenty four seven type thing? Because you know the, the subs aren't ripping around at a thousand miles an hour. It's it's no. you know nope. we're talking a few knots. So so you can keep track of these guys for the most part. Well, you know the interesting thing about ASW is that they're in the environment and you aren't. So the uh, sound travels through water based on a lot of different things, right? Temperature, solidity pressure all have an impact on the sound profile that's being emanated from the submarine and that and is, how far it goes this is all sonar we're okay. talking no so this is passive passive so this is just the sound of their propellers of their of their electronic systems you know pumps all that kind of stuff so okay. to make sure i get this in in english mm-hmm. uh how well can you hear them that's based right. on the environmental factors underwater that's right so it's like your car Okay. Um, if I'm standing at the end of the driveway and you're driving down the street, I'm going to hear you at some point, I'm going to start hearing you coming towards me. Right. And that frequency is going to change as you get directly abeam me. So the closest point of approach, it's the CPA, right? That CPA frequency is is something that we use as you leave me the frequency gets lower and at some point i'm gonna not hear you anymore right so um and you hear this all the time whenever you are standing outside and you hear airplanes flying by or you hear cars driving by if you pay attention the sound level changes and the frequency level changes as they go by you Okay. So in, in ASW, that's in a passive engagement where we drop sauna buoys that the sauna buoy is a aluminum cased buoy that floats. And out of that sauna buoy is a hydrophone. It's just a listening device, a passive listening device. And what happens is these frequencies come through the water. They're propagated through the water mass and the hydrophone picks it up. It gets transmitted up to the airplane, and in my on my screen, I have a waterfall display that shows me those frequencies. And based on different types of submarines, they emit different types of frequencies, and you can start, you know, picking out that there's that there's there's another, you know, there's a bad guy out there. Right. Once you pick out that there's a bad guy out there. As long as you put the sauna buoys in the right positions, you can continue to track them. Oh, I see. And as you continue to track them and you work that solution down to, um, down to criteria that we can drop a weapon in, we want to keep them in that criteria. We want to keep them in attack criteria so that if the, the, uh, if the Admiral calls and says, Hey, listen, you are weapons free we can immediately attack the submarine. Okay, so and in see, the if P3, I, see if I get this straight. 
you're strategically placing these listening devices, sonar buoys, mm-hmm. around the sub or in the area where the sub is expected to go. Right. So you can maintain the ability to hear the sub. Correct. Is that? That's right. Okay. And, okay, I get it. So you're, I mean, it's a strategic play where you drop each. Yeah, so basically what happens is that you get, um, let's say the battle group commander says, okay, we're going from point A to point B. I'm, I, am, I am outside the Straits of Gibraltar. I want to in-chop the Mediterranean. The only way to get there is to go through the Straits of Gibraltar. And so the bad guys know that you, that's where you got to go. A choke point. Yep. So now they say, okay, we want you to go ahead and lay sonobuoy fields in the choke, you know, the entrance to the choke point so that we can sanitize the area from, you know, bad guy submarines. If we gain contact, then um, now we have to identify that contact as, you know, unknown or hostile or whatever it is. And then we have to prosecute the contact from there on. And now what we're doing is we're honing that solution. Mm-hmm uh into into what we call that attack solution once we get into the attack solution now at any point uh as long as the airplane is configured properly for the for the weapon that we're going to choose to use then we can put a weapon on the target so by solution you mean criteria that's right so So they've met a weapons release criteria yeah so the angles right where we're going to position oh yeah a lot of math yeah, so it's it's a lot of geometry, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's real, and I'm not a math guy. No, yeah. same here. I'm a visual guy, and that beautiful thing is is that uh, is that the displays and all the rest of it. You know, you got to do some mental math, but um, and and you got to be good at it because it, the key is that you know we're talking in the S3, we did the same thing. P3, um, it, you had a, you had more people and more more information to pull together. Um, but you have to communicate well as a crew and you have to, the pilots, their job is to position the airplane so that the, the tactical coordinator can drop the weapon. Pilots didn't drop the weapons. Mm -hmm. They, they basically got, it was a human autopilot that was getting them to the right spot so that they could drop the weapon. So that the taco could drop the weapon. So you guys are doing the math in the back. That's right. Telling the pilots where to go. Yep. So you can drop the buoys. Yep. Okay. What was the posture of the Soviets in the Med at the time? Was it aggressive? Was it passive? Well, I mean, or did it vary? It was always, um, it varied, but, uh, you know, everybody was testing each other all the time. Yeah. Right. I mean, um, just everyone's kind of poking the bear, both sides. Absolutely. 100%. I mean, and, and during the time that we're dealing with, with submarines, you know, we've got, um, we've got bear bomber overflights that are happening. Oh yeah. We've got other, uh, other Soviet tactical aircraft that are, are testing the so, battle. Group. So this isn't just happening, you know, underwater. That's a 3d scenario. So their aircraft are, they're pushing the limits of the carrier strike group. Yeah. Airborne as well. Yeah. So you've got, you've got warfare commanders in the battle group. Guys, you got an air warfare commander, you got a surface warfare commander, you got a subsurface warfare commander, and all of them are running different perspectives, right? And then you get the admiral who is who is now taking all of that information and making decisions about how they may defend or engage 
the the enemy. Um, and back then, you know, we we looked at them as, you know, it was. I mean, they they were considered the bad guys, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this was the Cold War, and and we were our job was to was to uh, assert naval power, and their job was to assert their power, and you know the and hopefully nobody was going to get across a tipping point, right? It was just it was the game of how close can you get without getting too far. That's right. I mean, there regularly there would be, and we knew when it was going to happen. There would be uh, Soviet aircraft that would buzz here, buzz the carrier. You knew when it was going to happen. Most of the time, we we had a good idea what what was going to happen, and um, and it would disrupt flight operations. You know, uh, again, I was a real junior guy at the time, so I wasn't real involved in the the big picture stuff. Later in my career, when when I was flying the P three Orion and. Uh, I had a much better insight into all of that, but it was, you know, it was a, it was a big game, right? I mean, it was, it was, it was every day you were flying a real mission and you may or may not be carrying weapons at the time. Um, but it was, it was the real deal. So what, what was the, did you get a chance to kind of see the different personalities based on how these different sub commanders acted. Yeah. So when I, you know, jumping forward into the P three community, when I was flying the P three, which is a long range patrol aircraft, we had, um, we knew which submarines that we were going after. How how did you, I mean, you literally specifically knew this was the USS or the, yeah, we knew this is the Red October. We knew the whole whatever. number of who we were on and who the commander was, and, and typically who the commander was. And you know, gouge got passed down, right? So we, you would have an intel would give you a this is this is the sub, this is the commander, this is his background, this is his military record, personality type, all that. Well, I mean, as much as they had, right? right? But um, when we were flapping on a on a, let's say you had a you know, a boomer coming out of the north, right? So he's coming down and he's transiting in between the Keflavik um, uh, UK gap. You know, so Keflavik in, in the United Kingdom. Where's Keflavik? It's Iceland. Oh, Iceland. got it. Yeah, cool. so it's the Iceland-UK gap. Is so they would swing it. a left around the UK and then enter the Med? So what they would do is, yeah, they come down, right? They go in between Iceland and in between the United Kingdom. And then in there, we would try to pick them up in the North Atlantic and track them all the way down into the Strog, straight to Gibraltar, and then into the Mediterranean. Okay. And so the um, what would happen is, is that we would get queuing data. We would go out, we would put in our sensors, and then uh, – Hopefully gain contact. And back that time, you know, it was all NATO forces that were flying. So we had lots of different types of airplanes. You know, we had the Germans, we had the Dutch, we had, you know, the, the guys from the RAF, we had the Canadians um, and, and us, and we we're all flying out of Iceland, you know, uh, meeting at the, at the, at the nut, which was the BOQ bar every night, drinking and telling stories and, and nice. trading information. So, Iceland, real quick, just quick question on that. You guys are there strategically because that was an entry point? Absolutely, because that was that was the first place where we could pick up um, 
Soviet submarines or Russian submarines as things changed, right? Yeah. Uh, as they came out of the northern ports, we would be able to pick them up and then they could go a couple of different places. They could go off the east coast of the United States. They could go down into the Mediterranean, which were the kind of the two different areas that typically we would go for. Um, so it would not be unusual for me to be in Iceland and a target starts getting worked and for me to end up in Bermuda to continue to work the target or, or go to lodges in the Azores and work the target as they were potentially getting ready to inch up the med. So, and depending on where our battle groups were, we would, um, we would be either in direct support of the battle group or we'd be on our own working ocean, open ocean operations mm -hmm. to, um, so that we could keep track of them. And as they started becoming in a position where they could interface with the battle group. How was there a lot of them? Were there a lot of Russian subs zipping around? Sometimes, you know, there was, it, it varied. I mean, there was, as I told you back in the kind of 81, 82, 83 time period, uh, lots and lots of submarines. We got a ton of sub time. What's right? a ton of submarines. So, um, it's, you know, like I said, it, around the battle group and that, and during that one period of time, there was five active submarines. And one battle group. Around one battle group. Okay. Yeah. And so that's a lot. Right? That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Because the, the thing is, is that, and we kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but submarines are not easy to find and track, right? Once you get them, um, they always have the advantage because they're in the water mass, right? They, the sound propagation in the water mass is is defined by all of these different variables that we kind of talked about either earlier, right? The they constantly know where they are in the water mass. So if they um, if if they want to be as quiet as possible, they can they can exploit the water mass to do that. And our sensors that we deploy um, may be in the right spot. You know, the right area of the water mass, or they may be above a layer or below a layer where sound propagation doesn't penetrate. And so um, you asked earlier about, you know, what we knew about these guys. And I said something about passing the gouge down is that, you know, when they understand that they're being prosecuted, some of them have certain tactics that they like to implement. And so the gouge would be passed down just like you, know, you guys or yeah. like Don had, you know, in Vietnam, right? You got the gouge from other guys. Right. And, um, you know, in some of the movies, they talk about crazy Ivans and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Well, that's a real thing. It really is? Yeah, I mean, they really... So, wait a second. Hunt for an October, crazy Ivan, that's that's not bullshit? No, I mean, it, it really what they're doing there is they're, they're checking their six, right? They're in, in a scenario like that. They are, you know, they may be... be you know, hauling ass on a course in a speed and then they cut their power. They do a 360 so they can get a sweep of, you know, what is going on around them. And then they start on course again. It's not dissimilar to a, uh, to a, a, a diesel submarine that's out there operating and pops up and does a radar sweep of, of the horizon to see what kind of, what other shipping is out there? It's gotcha. just awareness, right? Okay. Um, 
So this really is a chess match. I mean, it really is. They know what you're going to do. They know when you can see them based on the environmentals and the water. They know where to go so you can't see them. Mm -hmm. And that's gnarly, man. Yeah, so it's, and they, they will use the underwater terrain as well, right? So terrain masking for sound. Underwater they, yeah. terrain masking. So they, um, you know, the, 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 the scope of the discussion around underwater sound propagation is, you know, you're, it's, it's hours and hours and hours yeah, of yeah, discussion. That's, that's, but the, the, like what you did as a fighter pilot, right? The tactics uh, that you employed to, um, to put yourself in the best position possible, right? Either with altitude or air speeds, right? To 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 get the solution that you needed on the bad guy is essentially what we were doing. We were just doing it in a much different environment, right? We had we had very very seasoned submarine captains that were that were trying to evade a you know a lieutenant that was the mission commander on a P three. Mm -hmm. And they had the advantage of the environment and we had the advantage of speed. We could, we could leapfrog them. And as long as we were in the right place, we could put sensors in place to be able to, to continue to maintain contact. So that was part of the game is to anticipate where they were going. So you're anticipating their next move, right? That's part of your, this, this three dimensional chess game. 100%, yeah. They know where they're going. So they're assessing the environmentals in the water to avoid being seen by you. And this is all happening at how fast are the subs actually going? Well, it depended, right? I mean, some Because you guys are in, in the, you're low altitude. So yeah, we're low altitude. We're, thousand feet? Uh, no, we're uh, daytime, you know, 200, 300 at night. You know, that kind of Jeez, range. Jeez, dude. Uh, 300 at night? Yeah. For yeah. how long? Uh, it could be a long time. It could be several hours at a time. Oh my gosh! So dude. the pilots are you know, two pilots and a flight engineer up top, uh, you know, up front, and you know they had, um, yeah, the autopilots obviously were saving lives, not not good. Right? So uh, <laughs> yes. altitude control was 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 altitude hold was was a good thing. Because you guys would do 10, 12 hour missions. Yep. Normal. Yep. At yep. two and three hundred feet. Yeah, so we do a you know high profile transit to get out there, and then uh, we would drop down on station, drop all the sensors, and what we might do is we might climb to monitor, um, depending on what the contact was. You know, if we had if it was cold, we were dropping a pattern. We might climb up again, monitor the pattern. But as soon as we got contact, we were down low. We needed to be low because we needed to, to the dwell time. We couldn't we had to get the buoys as close as possible to where we actually wanted them to be. Mm -hmm. And then we had to maintain this geo plot of all of these buoys, right? Because these buoys are drifting in the water and we have a navigation system that at the time was no GPS navigation. It's right. all, you don't have the Garmin 3000. I mean, we're our inertial navigation, baby. I mean, that's as, as best you got. And, um, inertial navigations in the Northern latitudes would drift. So, uh, listen, I was taking cell shots. Celestial navigation shots were required on every overwater flight. So I was putting a sextant out of the top of the airplane when I was a navigator. And 
taking either a star shot or a sun shot to generate a line of bearing to validate our navigation. System. This is Christopher Columbus stuff. No kidding. Yeah. So, I mean, we had, <laughs> we had the books, I mean, literally these big star chart books and, uh, and, and all the rest of it. And we had to do the math, right? I mean, you had to write down all this oh stuff gosh. and figure it out. And, um, and then, so the, uh, you drop a whole bunch of buoys, you fly a pattern to see if any of them are picking up, you know, the sub or subs you're looking for, and then keep going. Yeah. So now, and just, so just, so you got geographic navigation, which says here's Iceland and here's the UK, right? And then you've got tactical navigation, which is in relation to this field of buoys that are out there where am i right and where's the bad guy jeez those are two disconnected things you're right? you're doing math and geometry nonstop. yeah and i'm not good at that right Gosh. so um but anyway we we did all that stuff we were able to to figure out where everything was but um the once we gain contact now we are trying to track this submarine we're trying not to let them know that we're tracking them. Uh, they, if they didn't know or didn't care, they were trying to do, they were on a mission too. They were trying to get where they were going. Right. And so they might not care that we're tracking them until they get where they're, where they're on station is. Right. And then they want to be, they don't want to have anybody know where they are. Um, but, their other time, their job was to not let you be able to track them. So they would use all their tactics to try to try to get you off of them. And then we would use our tactics to try to stay on them. And then remember that, that the idea was to gain contact and maintain contact until uh, you turned over to the next airplane or you turned over to the next ASW sector, right? So you got them out of the North Atlantic, you got them into the Mediterranean, Guys in the Mediterranean were responsible for them at that time. And you did not want to look bad in one of those flights. You wanted to make sure that you maintained contact. And we were doing, we would sometimes transfer contact from one airplane to another airplane, maybe a U.S. airplane, maybe a NATO airplane. You know, we're all using similar tactics and, um, and, as we talked about before, this could be MCON. It could be done without any radio communication. So you got airplanes with no lights on, you know, flying in the same airspace and, you know, hoping that everybody's using the right procedures so that they don't run into each other. And then turning over contact so that the next crew can, can go do their thing. Gotcha. So what did you notice about the personalities of the sub commanders? Was it accurate with the gouge that you were given or were there any surprises? Yeah. I mean, there was, there was, yeah, there was, there was always surprises, right? I mean, you always had to be ready for, for something that was going to happen. Uh, you know, I had been a, a, a W in my enlisted career right now. I'm an officer, right? right. Yeah. And, you've graduated. Uh, Congratulations. Yeah, so, yeah. Thanks. I, well, you know, it was, uh, uh, we're just going to skip all that. Yeah, well, that so all you, that you stuff magically is, went yeah. from E what? So I was a E one, and then e1, I, I left o. the Navy as an E five. Went to college, gotcha, and uh, and then ended up 
back in the Navy again at some point. And so now you're, you're, are you a Lieutenant now? So on that, on that deployment, I am a, um, well, yeah. So I was a Lieutenant JG, I think maybe when I did my first deployment and then, uh, um, you know, when I was a mission commander, I was a Lieutenant. Okay. Okay. So you're an O3 mission commander. Yeah. And then, um, and yeah, we did several, you know, my, most of my career was, was P3, right? So, gotcha. uh, that I did a lot of different places in the P3 North Atlantic was, uh, uh, I'd spent a lot of time there and, um, we had this, this thing we were, we were a, a, uh, there was an old thing called project bear trap, which was a, uh, which was the crews that were assigned to do that were actually controlled by the chief naval operations and it basically was just data collection stuff. It was not anything that was, we, we just did the exact same thing that everybody else did. We just did it at a different, you know, a different level of precision. And, um, it, it, uh, we could get tasked, you know, I was in Panama one time flying, flying drug ops down there and got tasked to, go to the Mediterranean because there was a target there that they needed us to go work on. So they would pull crews out of, out of squadrons to do that stuff. Um, but, um, but yeah, I was a Lieutenant at the time and, um, you know, North Atlantic operations were, were kind of hairy because the weather was brutal and, uh, you know, we'd be flying at, at, 200 feet having radar altimeters go off because the sea state was so high we'd have you know 60 70 foot waves that were rolling through there and my crew would be yeah the junior guy on the crew got to after we took off got to altitude um i would have my junior guy go and and break out all the poopy suits right and all of the uh all of the um exposure suits yeah because the sea surface temperature basically was 32 degrees right and it's and it's in the winter time it's dark all the time obviously so so, to, so for our for our studio audience they're really what the poopy suit is is a very comfortable and warm suit that keeps you alive for a few extra minutes if you go in the water in the north atlantic that's right they're the big gumby suits the big gumby suits. big orange suits right and um so the junior guy, his job was pass out all these things. They put them next to where everybody sat. And the reality of it was that, that low altitude ASW, if you went in the water, you never, you probably would not have the time to put these things on. Right. But it just made everybody feel better. So we made everybody feel good. And, uh, <laughs> if we were going down in the North Atlantic, you know, we had a, uh, if we're low altitude and, you know, caught a wingtip or did, you know, I had a multiple engine failure or something like that and went in the water. Yeah. There was no, yeah, there was no getting us back. So, yeah. um, but you know, that's kind of what you did, right? Just like what you did. And, um, so the, uh, North Atlanta, Atlantic operations were, were interesting um, there was times that we would be flying a mission and not be able to get back to Iceland because the weather was so bad that the winds were, we didn't have enough fuel to get back. So we'd have to go to Macrahanish and go land there. Where's that at? It's in, um, um, Scotland. 
Okay, that's cool. Yeah, so we go. Well, not really because we cool? land. We'd re, if we still had crew day left, we'd fuel and go fly. So back no there. time to go to the pub. Yeah, yeah. Now I did uh, get a chance to go to Scotland and go play the old course while I was while I was flying out of ice. Wait, wait, wait. Hang on. This is the so, the British Open. Course. That's right. Yeah, right. St. And Andrews. It, sucked. it was terrible. It was absolutely <laughs> terrible. We flew over there, and uh, yeah, we had our golf clubs with us. We we put them in the back of the P three. Oh, that's we, see, that's that's there. So you know, one of the perks of being a P three, right, yeah. you can chuck your golf clubs in the back. That's legit. And you got to play St Andrews. That's right. So we get we got to play St Andrews, and it was the worst out of all the golf courses I played around the world. That was the worst day ever, and it. It, the weather was, I mean, it's blowing 40 knots off the North Sea, sideways rain, and the Scots are out there like it's like Tuesday. Sure. It's no big deal, right? They're having a and good time. We, I've got my flight jacket on. I've got every bit of clothing that I could ever have on and, you know, out there trying to trying to hit golf balls. And I was a pretty good golfer at the time. Um, the so pubs guys, were good. Afterwards, we made up for it in the boat. All right, the there you go. Camp. There you go. So what was, did you have any interesting interactions with any specific sub commanders any of the soviets when, when you were a at this point where you're in the p3 world yeah um as far as as what goes you mean anything i guess uh out of the ordinary or, or, or memorable because most of it i mean was it monotonous or was it a constant edge of your seat yeah, no. So here, so basically, it, it worked like this. It was it was monotonous because you would go out there and you drop your stuff, and then, and then once you gain contact, it was, you know, you could be, um, you could be flying for six hours in contact, and it's twenty minutes later, right? I mean, that's what it feels like because you are working your ass off, and. Um, the, it's hard on your body because you're in the chair and you got guys in the back of the airplane that are that are doing different jobs and and the the ordinanceman back there is he's he's you know, we've got internal buoys and external buoys and the internal buoys he's manually configuring those things and dumping them out of the airplane the pilots are depending on what the what phase we were in you know they could be they could be pulling you know, I mean, as aviators and pilots, we, we all like to keep everything be a one G turn, but they could be anywhere from, you know, one to three G's in a, in constant turns to get the buoys in the right place. And so it, it wears you out. Right. So we would get back from a mission and we had a three hour, you know, the pre-flight would be a couple hours the post flight would be a couple hours. My whole crew would go back and hit the rack or go to the bar, and I'd still be there doing uh, doing the post flight with the intel guys, right? Transferring information, making yep. sure all that that yep. is in. And you know, typically what we did after that, we had a bar inside the BOQ, and it was called the Nut, and we'd go to the Nut and we had a very very tight windows, right? Because if you're flapping. And, you know, flapping means that you're flying, um, you would fly your mission, you would have a 12 hour turnaround and then you're, you're flying again. Oh, dude! And you could do that for a certain amount of time. And then the, uh, uh, flight surgeon 
has to interview you and make sure that you're not you know going crazy or something dude that'll dr- that that's uh, no joke man yeah like 12 on 12 off yeah so you but what we tried to do is so we tried to make it like you had like an extra two hours right so that you could go to the nut and drink for a couple hours and then you go to bed and then be back you know flying again yeah. after that and uh but it, it was, you know, it wasn't anything to see, <laughs> you know, walk in there in the morning and see guys pouring beer in their Cheerios and, and, uh, you know, eating that was normal. Yeah. It was that like was normal. normal ops. Right. Um, and the air force guys, they had F they had F 15s up there and they were, they were the primary interceptors for, you know, for the, um, Soviets coming out of the North and they had this bar called the Whiff, and, uh, they had their wives up there. So they could have a company tours in, in Iceland. And, uh, so we would go over to the WIF and, <laughs> and start playing with the air force watch. So it was, it was, uh, it was, it was all a bunch of fun, but okay. Good uh, stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. They, they had this upside down, this, this upside down tequila shot thing that they would do there. And the, and, uh, everybody would go hang their legs over the bar and drink and the wives would get up there and their dresses would be down around their ears and they're trying to drink, drink their drink. But you know, it was, it was kind of a normal thing. So it was good. <laughs> In Iceland. In Iceland. In yeah. Iceland. Yeah. And at, at some point on another, in another venue, I'll, I'll tell you a story about, uh, about a, young navy pilot called tommy Hardon, but that's a different story sounds very <laughs> at a uh, bar in iceland it, it sounds pulled surprise-esque mm-hmm. you know like most in yep. navy marine corps air absolutely. force any, any military story yeah, absolutely awesome all right yeah. quick five minute break yeah so you had mentioned a while back that there was a specific experience with a certain russian nuclear sub that was we'll call memorable well, I think, yeah, well, I think what you're talking about is, is we, you know, I, I had been a instructor at the RAG, you know, the replacement air group for, for those listening. And the, you know, part of what I did was I, I, I would bring guys in, I would, I would get them to exercise not only the full capability of the aircraft systems, but also the full capability of, of our doctrine. And part of that doctrine was scene of action commander. So when you are the first in contact, your role as a mission commander is to see, is to assume scene of action commander for the area of responsibility that you're in. And so I would, I would, I would, I would try to drill this into these guys has now the opportunity to actually do that with in a battle group environment is, is not high, right? You could do that when you're on your own out in the middle of the ocean, anywhere you're, you're always a scene of action commander. So break that down. What are, what's the responsibility of the scene of action commander? So as scene of action commander, you have complete control of all forces that are, are in the area of cognizance. So airborne forces, Airborne forces, surface forces, surface forces, and yeah. subsurface forces. Yeah, you probably can't communicate with those guys, but right. you know, theoretically, yeah. yeah. So you have the ability and responsibility to direct aircraft and direct ships. That's Is right. That, to that direct fair? those forces to employ their capabilities against the threat at the time, and you do that until until such time as the 
as the other area commander has has um, the uh, the scope to understand exactly what the situation is and then to assume scene assume command at that point and the probably the the best use of that scenario and and is not often used is i was flying out of lodges and we were tasked to support the inchop of a carrier battle group into the mediterranean and we knew that there were that were there were there were submarines in the area and so we did the brief got the crew and this was after i'd been at the rag so i'd, I'd been a rag instructor already i was now a uh, i had gone up to willow grove pennsylvania to be part of what was called um the RATSEN, which is the Reserve ASW Training Center. I was an active duty officer that was working with with reserve crews and officers. And we were a training command, so I, essentially I was going from one training command to another, but they had tasked us for uh, to go in operational support of, a, uh, of other squadrons. And it, so... It, quick break. And so you're a lieutenant yeah. right now, right? So, so now I'm a lieutenant command. I'm... Uh, I, I'm a lieutenant. I'm a lieutenant commander select. So I had not pinned it on yet, but Got I'm it. a lieutenant. Okay. And, uh, so we, you know, uh, head on off to lodges and we get into the rotation and we're flapping because we know that there's, there, we're doing a lot. We're flying, you know, 12 on 12 off kind of scenario. And again, another, nice couple of bars over in lodges for us to go to and for that little, that little, that little hour or two that we can actually drink prior to, to go and fly. And we, the, the mission is to support the battle group. They're going to inch up the Mediterranean. They're outside the Straits of Gibraltar. And we launch on out there. We go ahead and put in our first uh, set of, of uh, buoy fields and gain contact on what we identify as a as a, a a hostile classified submarine so it's it's not a friendly right and so the positioning of the submarine was that and it, actually we gained contact on this target it wasn't it wasn't acoustically we gained car contact on a radar riser which means that the 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 submarine had surfaced had put a periscope out and was taking a look to see what was out there and my sensor three operator who was a radar operator called contact we immediately went to the location of the contact and dropped sauna buoys and gained contact on the target so they were tracking the target the target's maneuvering and the target is is transitioning into what we what is referred to as the limiting lines of approach which means an area where the target could actually shoot a weapon that um uh, you know it, it's a, an engagement area basically and so the i had been teaching these guys for several years about what your responsibility is if you're the first to gain contact in in this scenario and so i called the ship and so uh, all right so i gotta let's let's yeah. paint the picture here yeah you one of your bros 
picks up contact of a sub. Yep. This is Russian. Yep. Okay, Russian sub. And the carrier battle group is in the vicinity, right? That's correct. So when the ship you're calling, are you calling the admiral? Yeah, so we're calling. So when the way it works is that we launch out of lodges. Once we get within range of the battle group, we check in with the battle group. And now we are a battle group asset, right? We tell them, hey, this is Papa 3 Charlie, you know, P3C. We're inbound, uh, establishing our, you know, on station, whatever it is, right? And so they typically call you back. They tell you, you know, okay, you're, you know, do your drops, whatever, you know, do, do your thing. And so we did. And that's when we got the contact on the submarine and immediately started dropping additional sauna buoys to verify that we had contact on something because sometimes you get these, you know, these spurious radar contacts and it turned out that we had a submarine. Yeah. And we classified the submarine as a, uh, as a bad guy submarine and we call back to the ship and we talk to them and we talked to the, uh, the warfare commander that is the um, subsurface warfare commander. And we talked to him and we say, hey, look, we've got contact. And they say, roger that. And I told them, I said, and I'm referring to myself as P3C, right? So I said, pop three, Charlie, hot contact, um, hostile submarine. My unit assumes scene of action commander. And there's this pause on the radio. And they come back and they say, Roger, stand by. And I said, I said, Roger, that pop three stand, stand by. And, we're, and now we're, we're still prosecuting, right? We're turning, we're engaging, we're doing all the stuff we're doing. And a couple of minutes, well, yeah, about a couple of minutes later, a different voice comes on the radio and says, pop three, Charlie, um, Roger, your unit scene of action commander. And so we continued to engage and uh, to do our stuff to prosecute the target. And the target was maneuvering into a position that 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 got into these to this limiting line of approach criteria. And so, uh, so th this this sub is approaching a weapons employment. Yeah, zone. I mean, it's it's not like they're going to shoot them, but they're in a position to be able to do that. Okay. Okay. And so I called back to the carrier and I said, hey, listen, you know, I basically gave them directions, right? I told them that I wanted them to turn to the north, um, which took them off course for their entrance into the, the Mediterranean. And the reason I did that was because I knew that if they turned in this direction, then I could put in active sauna buoys to drive the submarine in a different direction. And then there would be no opportunity for the, for the submarine to be able to, to engage the carrier. And so the voice, the second voice came back on this said, Roger that, uh, you know, we're turning to the North. And so the carrier and the battle group. So the battle group turned to the north. Turns, yeah, because you said, "Hey, turn." That's right. So, and there's a lot of technical <laughs> jargon behind yeah. that, but uh, you know, we won't talk about that. But, but I, this is this is a we, we have to 
Yeah, this is kind of cool. So you told a, a carrier battle group, which is usually, so you've got a aircraft carrier, I don't know, some destroyers. Yep. There's some... So it's carrier. There's all the ships that are in support of the carrier. So you've got you know, destroyers and frigates and, and all the rest. And they, they turn. And I also asked them for one of their ships to, um, to start, you know, to take a heading to start actively pinging with their sonar to provide a screen for the carrier because the, the submarine doesn't want to get into that active sonar scenario where they're, they're being pinged. Mm -hmm. And so that ship turned the carrier battle groups going one way that ship turns. Well, during all of that, we get contact on another target. And so this other target, uh, pops up and this is an unknown target now. And we're working the first target. We get another target and I call back to the ship and I say, launch your alert helicopters and gave them the range and bearing to the, this suspected second target. And so they launched their alert ASW helicopters to go and, uh, to prosecute this second unknown target. And yeah, the reason that this is all working now is because right now this Lieutenant that's flying around in a P three has got the best situational awareness of anybody in the battle group. And so they're actually doing it, right? So they launched this helo. The helo goes out. Now the helo gains contact on the second target. And so this is a real deal. We got, we got two active contacts. One has been classified as a bad guy. The other one is unclassified still, and they're still, they're working that target, trying to figure it out. And so now um, we are, we're still kind of, directing the battle group the battle group commander uh, at some point takes over and says so hey we've got full situational awareness and uh, we are now assuming scene of action commander and so we finished doing what we're doing and we we turn over to another airplane and ultimately what happens is that the battle group in chops the Mediterranean. Okay, so both of the targets are identified. Both of the targets now have been driven in different directions, and uh, because they don't want to be, they they want to break contact from us, and so the the battle group now transits into the Straits of Gibraltar and then into the Mediterranean, and so I'm like, dude, I am. This is not good for me, right? Because I'm going to go back to lodges and I'm going to. Um, um, this is probably, you know, I've told this battle group to do all this stuff. Yeah. Who runs a them, battle group? Normally? Taking them off schedule, right? Who, uh, an, an admiral, right? Yeah. yeah. So and, you told uh, the, you took the admiral off schedule. So the Atlanta or yeah. the, 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 the lieutenant is <laughs> lieutenant, taking, you're going to have duty the, on Sunday, that's right, bro. Taking, that's right. Taking <laughs> the admiral off course. And so we get back and I land and at the bottom of the ladder is this, um, air force general. And, there's also a, uh, a Navy commander there. And I mean, we hadn't even shut down all the engines yet. They're, they're at the bottom of the airplane. So they, 
say, hey, who's Lieutenant Quinlan? And I said, yeah, that would be me. He said, well, you need to come with us. Right <laughs> oh, This is good. <laughs> so they take me to the the skiff, which is the is you know you know what the skiff is, right? That's the where we do all. That's where all the, the secret squirrels, all the briefings, live. and all that yeah, kind of stuff. Secret squirrels hang out there. <clears throat> and they say we've got a we have got a um, a telegraph for you, right? Because back then, right, we were doing teletype, so all the messages were like da 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 da, you know that kind of thing. So this teletype, they hand it to me and it says, you know, Admiral sends uh, Bravo Zulu to, you know, P3 crew. Uh, you actually followed U.S. doctrine and assumed scene of action commander. Um, you know, we appreciate your help. And the whole time I'm thinking I'm just getting my ass handed to me, right? <laughs> yeah, man. And and sure enough, you know, this guy was was gracious enough, right, that he he was like, you know what, here's a guy that actually did what we told him to do. And and it it all worked out great. Right. But people often ask me, they say, they say, Mike, you know, how did you ever transition from from being a Navy guy to doing what you do right so what i do now is i work with companies that are getting ready to transition from you know to to sell their company right so business owners are are trying to do this and in that world it takes there's lots of advisors around these business owners you have attorneys and cpas and other types of attorneys and lawyer you know the the um, insurance guys and all these people that are giving advice to these owners and they say to me, Mike, how could you, how could you get from being a Navy guy to doing what you do now? And I said, well, sometimes I tell them this story because really what it is, it's, it's taken lots of outside information, dissimilar, uh, platforms that are providing information that you have to distill into a singular tactical strategy that you can employ. And that's really what I do now. The only difference is, is that I'm not flying around at 200 feet at night with 60 foot waves or with, you know, somebody trying to target me and I'm taking that information and I'm, and I'm putting it into a executable tactic that we can use to help these business owners be able to maximize their uh, the value of their transaction, the probability that it actually happens. So it's really a natural thing for me, right? Um, and people look at me and they're like, well, okay, I guess so. <laughs> but it works. So it's, it's you know? not foreign to you because you've done this before in a, in a different scenario. That's right. I mean, the amount of moving parts that are going on in that, the scenario you just talked about where you've got a Russian sub approaching a piece of, you know, we'll, we'll just call it a, a, a location where he can employ a weapon on a U.S., you know, carrier battle group. Right. And you recognize this in your airplane flying around above and tell the battle group and all their ships to turn out of the way while you're dropping, I mean, if you listed all the variables and the moving parts in that whole equation, there's a significant amount and I'm, I'm missing, I'm yeah. sure a whole bunch of them, but 
getting back to that story, was there any ROE in place? I mean, was this, did you, was there ever a point in this evolving scenario where you're like, holy shit, this guy's actually really, really pushing the limit? Because did you have weapons on your P3 at the time? Yeah. So this was not a, this was more one of those situations where they were just trying to piss us off. Oh, so, okay. okay. So this is just, yeah. So this, you know, the, could they have, have put weapons on a U.S. carrier battle group? Absolutely. No question about it. No kidding. Okay. And, and our job was, that, you know, what was the probability that they were going to do that? It was low. Our job was not to worry about the probability. Our job was to worry about keeping them away from their ability to execute. Right. Okay. So, um, and that's part of what the, the Cold War was all about. It, it wasn't about whether or not, you know, what the probability of an actual uh, weapon launch would be. It was about deterrence. It was about our ability to keep somebody in a position where they ha- didn't have the opportunity to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Unlike um, some of the engagements that you may have flown in where it is, you know, you are engaging in a scenario where there is a 100% identified direct threat of, a, of, of weapons free, right? In our scenario, you didn't know whether or not they're weapons free. So that, that's, it made it a little more difficult, right? Yeah. So it really is, I mean, there's a, the, there's a lot of patience involved with that. But what was the, I mean, I, if you get, you know, a rogue Soviet or Russian commander who really, really, really wants to push the limit, and you also get a, maybe a young and experienced trigger-happy lieutenant yep. in a P3. So this is, it went well. It worked out fine. Your your calm decision making young lieutenant telling the admiral and his ships to turn left. So yep. good work. Yep. But I mean this this chess match is really if one or the other or even both get too aggressive in any way, try to push that line too far, maybe honestly even don't know their tactics correctly because it's based on numbers and understanding weapons engagement ranges and all yep. that stuff. Yep. And one or the other hits the button based on pick your factor. Dude, that could go south quickly. So, what, yeah. I mean, what was the energy like for you? Were you nervous when this is all going down? Not really. No. I mean, it was it was, it was was just like what you did in the F-18, right? I mean, when you you flew your procedures, you, 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 you knew what your uh geometry was you knew you know as you were engaging another target that you didn't know whether or not you were weapons free on your job at that time was only to put your aircraft in a position that you could optimize the use of it right and that's what we did and that's all we were we were just working the problem and the you know the thing about about that time in the world was it was more about making mistakes, right? What would be the mistake that somebody made that caused a, 
you know, a blow up in a region. And, you know, could it be that young lieutenant that's flying in a P3? You know, could it be a, a, a weapons officer on a ship that was engaging with a, with a Russian submarine? Could it be the Russian submarine themselves as they, as they were gathering information and had miscommunication with the command authority? I mean, remember that, that our direction for our ability to be weapons free was, was largely predicated on long distance communication. And I could be out in the, in the North Atlantic, a thousand miles off of the, off the coast of Iceland. And we're using teletype HF devices to receive communications. We had to be in communications with, um, with our command authority via teletype right every and i forget what it was it was every one hour or 30 minutes or something but as a navigator communicator i had to have a message that i could log that said we had direct communication because that's where our orders were coming from did you have the authority to release a torpedo if that situation got potentially worse yeah if we were if we were out of out of communication and i had um, had the appropriate um, ROE, right? I, if I had the appropriate indications to me that there's a direct threat to the battle group, then I could, I could, uh, I could execute on that. I could, I could release a weapon. So, as a, <laughs> as a mission commander, <laughs> lieutenant in the P three. So the amount of responsibility that you carried with you as the mission commander for that you had the responsibility the ability the approval and the capability to launch a torpedo on a russian nuclear sub had it gotten to a in a specific range yeah. from a carrier battle group yeah i mean there's a lot of criteria that go into it obviously and and you're evaluating all that information but but you know, when it really comes down to it, we used to do, when I was a senior guy in the, in the squadron, we used to do these mission command reports. They'd be eight hours long, right? We would be, we'd just kill a guy on all these different scenarios about what would you do? And, um, you know, I mean, obviously like in any Navy board, the best thing to do is bring a lot of food so that the guys can ask you a yeah, lot of questions. First you bring right? donuts. That's right. Donuts I mean, and coffee. Bring yeah. Lots of food, but, uh, <laughs> um, but it was all scenario based. Everything that we did was scenario based, and um, these types of scenarios that that people would um, would have in real life, we would incorporate them into the into the boards, and and we would train guys up on on this, and and realize too that back in the day, the Navy was was all about screening out people that um, that couldn't make those decisions. You know, when you go into AOCS or you got guys that were coming out of the academy, whatever it was that they were doing and coming into leadership positions, they were, you know, the Navy's mission was attrition. It was about getting rid of guys that could, and, and gals, right, that could not um, be able to process that, process that information and make the right decision. Were you even aware of the amount of responsibility you had? I mean, did it affect you? So you said you weren't nervous. No, I mean, it, you know, 
listen. Or did you simplify it somehow in your mind? Well, it was compartmentalization, right? So we, uh, in, in naval aviation as it is for you, right, is, is you, go, you fly a mission and the only thing that you focus on is the mission. You're not thinking about the family. You're not thinking about money problems. You're not thinking about all that stuff. You know, you get in your box and at the end of the mission, you know, you get to get out of your box, but while you're on it, you're in the box and that's the way it works for this. So, um, in that, that particular flight, you know, I was in the box. I was only focused on, on what was required to execute tactical doctrine and, uh, be able to communicate it effectively and employ my aircraft in the way that I needed to employ it to, to do that. It, it, it wasn't about, you know, what's going to happen afterwards. It was just about, this is what you do. That's cool. So they, your training and the procedures put in place prevented you from essentially overthinking it. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, the great thing about it is that, you're not in isolation. You've got other people on the plane. Your job is to take into account all of the information, make a decision, and then execute on that. And just like you do in, in, in civilian life, running a company, right? I mean, it's all the same thing. Mm-hmm. You, you take the data in, you, analyze, you, know, you mentally analyze the data, you make the best decision that you can, and and then you execute on the decision and you don't look back the the where people fail right is when they have indecision and in a tactical scenario where you know you're you're it's real life right you've got things going on it's moving it's not as fast as you guys have when you're you know closure rate is you know 1200 knots or something but uh but it is you know it, it's it's you you're the guy that's what they pay you for that's what you got trained for you know your job is to make a decision execute the tactic communicate to your crew communicate to other you know warfare commanders that are out there around you and and move on and that's that's what leadership is right yeah that's that's a great i want to get into real quick the the lessons you learned you know, as an enlisted sailor and then as an officer. And how much of that do you apply in what you do now in the business you're involved in? Well, you know, for me, uh, it's just made up what I am, right? So I would say that everything I do is made by my life as as a military person. You know, starting as a as an E1 and, and finishing as an O5, the, you know, the part of it is how you deal with people, right? So there's, there's making decisions is one thing, um, you know, being creative and, and, and running a business is, is one thing, but part of that is understanding who you're around. Right. I mean, listen, I scrape non-skid off aircraft carrier deck, you know, non-skid is, is, is cement, you know, adhered to the, to the flight deck. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, I sat in a boatswain's chair and painted, you know, part of the hull. I, I slopped mid rats working down in the galley. 
Um, you know, so I've done all of those things and, you know, I had some really good leaders that were above me and I had some guys that just weren't good leaders, but from every piece of that, you learn something and it's part about developing what I call the texture of your life, right? If you, if you don't have all those experiences, then you don't generate any texture in your life. You're not an interesting person, right? You don't know how to relate to, you know, somebody that might just be coming out of high school or might just be coming out of college and doesn't know anything about what they're getting ready to do. But you've been there, right? You've done it. You got the t-shirt, you know, <laughs> you gotta get a t-shirt. It, it's all yeah. good, baby. You know? Uh, and so everything that I do is, been is driven by what i've been in the past i'm very fortunate in that i've had you know lots and lots of 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 interesting things you know experiences that have formed who i am now and hopefully as i work with uh with people young people especially helping develop them into uh, what they can be, because that's what's most important to me. It's it, working in these in these companies and organizations. It's it's really about how good are the people, the young people around you, because they're the ones that are going to actually make you successful. And if you don't know how to develop them, and you don't know how to encourage the ingenuity and the creativity out of them, then you ultimately will not grow, and you will fail. So that's probably the biggest lesson that I learned from all of my time in the military. Good stuff, man. And how's it working out so far? Uh, I'm not hurting. Not it's bad. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah. We're yeah. drinking beer at one yeah. o'clock in the afternoon. That's right. It's, it's, What's today? Friday? Yeah, uh, uh, Saturday. Be, yeah, it's game day. Saturday. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's game right. day. Yeah. Game day. Yeah. So awesome. Well, that's a good way to. I think uh, we'll finish it up, man. So, dude, thanks for taking the time, man. This is yeah. fun. Glad to do and we, this is like, we scratched, we barely scratched the surface of the stories. I mean, we, we didn't even get into Perth, Australia. Uh, we did not. We're not going to go or, into that. Or, or what was the other port called? Mauritius? Mauritius, yeah. That's insane. You guys pulled into Mauritius. And that's just, that's that's early days, man. There's lots of other oh fun places gosh, outside man. that. We're gonna, we Iceland. Haven't, we haven't talked about oh. Car- Cartagena yet. Cartagena, so. and also your drug cartel stuff. That's right. With all the Coke dealers in Colombia, was it? Yeah, Colombia. Yeah. All right, next time, next time. So. Um, so I like to finish this up first off, like, again, thanks for taking the time. This is a blast. I have an awesome time kicking it stories. You know, it's good to see a bro from Habersham out in Atlanta now. Absolutely. So, absolutely. So you finished up with a, with a really good lesson learned, but what's something that, um, when it comes to managing your people and your team that you apply from your experience, uh, in the Navy, when it comes to leading, your people. Yeah, actually. So that's a good question. The, uh, there's a, a, a person reached out to me yesterday, actually, that has new role as a president of a, of a company. And it's the first time they've ever done that. And they said, Hey, listen, what kind of advice can you give me about, about doing this? And first I, I asked him, I said, well, what are the expectations of the people around you? You know, they've put you into this position. What are the expectations of both the people that you work for, but also the people that are working with you? And 
you know, he told me about some stuff and he, he was actually a little surprised about it, but he, he told me some things and, and, um, and I, I said to him, you know, you have been in positions in the past where, and you're very talented and you're managing people, but now you're in a position where you can't be afraid to lead and leadership is, is different than managing a process. Leadership is about setting a vision. It's about, um, it's about people looking at you and wanting to work for you until, you know, 10 or 11 at night, right? Um, leadership is about encouraging performance without necessarily tying it to dollars. You, know, you and I both had lots and lots of people that work for us and with us in incredibly difficult environmental conditions, right? I mean, it's, they're changing engines on P3s and in blowing snow in Iceland, right? Now that sucks. Yeah, right. that sucks. And guess what? You know, if they screw it up, I'm in the water a thousand miles away from land in that poopy suit that we talked about earlier, and that doesn't go well for me. So they have to do it because they want to do it, because they're engaged to do it, not because of a paycheck. And what... I told him, as I said, you have to be able to find that magic. You have to be able to lead your people in such a way that it's not all about the money, but it's about the mission and it's about the organization and it's about really being as best as they can be. And, uh, and so that was on, that was actually on Thursday and I saw him in person on Friday and he said to me, you know, Mike, and I, I actually kind of, was um i apologized to him a little bit because i felt like i was i was busting his balls a little bit and i and uh, and he said he said no no it was a really good conversation as a matter of fact i've i've been deeply thinking about this whole leadership thing and uh, I, and nobody has ever told me something like that before and i really appreciate you doing that so there you go you know how do you apply it it's 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 doing it that way. There you go. Take care of your people. That's right. Magical things happen. How amazing? do you get someone to do what they don't want to do or to want to do what they don't want to do? Like change an engine in Iceland so you can go fly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Same it, thing with Marines. How do you get Marines to want to kick in a door? It's not like you either or not. You or I can write him a bonus check. No. He's still making his. Yeah. Not a lot. That's right. Yeah. That's right but they do it because you are in front, right? Yeah. You're in front. You're the one that is, that is leading the way. And, uh, and that's inspirational to them. And you know, too many times I think that people get, get caught up in, um, here's another little story. We did a, we did a, uh, a social event Monday night and the, the young person that was kind of organizing that social event for us. Uh, she arranged for the carrot caterers and, and all that kind of thing. And so we had, you know, 35, 40 people there. And when the event was all over, the caterers were getting cleaned up. 
And uh, she told me, she said, okay, well, you know, you can, you can leave. I'll, I'll take care of all this stuff. And I said, well, well, I'm, I'm happy to help you. And, you know, I went in there and we moved a bunch of chairs around. We got everything all set back up and the caterers got out of there and uh, she had her stuff and, and I walked her into the parking lot and, and up to her car. And she said, she said, you know, I really appreciate you staying until the end nobody's ever done that before i said well that's kind of my job i mean you're this is something this is an event that we're putting together and that that went off really well based on all the hard work you did and you know it's my responsibility to make sure that that you know we we carry this through to the end and you know there's not enough of that right that's something that you and I do every day or we used to, I mean, when I was in the military, right. But, yeah. uh, but, uh, that's just part of our culture. A little bit of appreciation for the hard work your people do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, first on last off, yeah. right. You do it, you lead it, you own it. And then you're, you're done with it. So I think that's a, that's a great spot to call it a day. What do you think? I love it. All right, so until next time, because we're going to do this again, we're going to talk Perth, Australia, because that's got to happen. <laughs> maybe maybe in the classified version. So. That's right, exactly. So. You have to have for for uh, the uh, the Patreons or for the uh, whatever it is, that they, the limited group. That's got right. it, got it. Yeah. We'll have everybody sign a non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> that's right, exactly. That awesome, okay, exactly. awesome. Any save rounds? You're good, buddy. Okay, all right, this is Mike and Susan. Right here, folks. See ya.